Hello and welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast where we talk about how players, teams, and the league as a whole can go into the lab and improve. My name is Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. And as always, I'm joined by my two co-podcasters here in the studio. We've got 538 sports writer Kyle Wagner. Hey, Kyle. Hey. And on the line from Chicago, as always, we've got 538 sports writer Chris Herring. Hey, Chris. What's going on, man? Welcome to the show, guys. And on today's show, you know, anything interesting happen on opening night? I don't know. (laughs) We're going to talk about the big item of the day, which is how Gordon Hayward's injury affects the Celtics and what effect it has on the rest of the league. But we're also going to talk about some stray opening night first impressions, and we're going to debut a new segment in which we have a little fun with things that take place in small sample sizes that may or may not prove to stand the test of time. So we're going to talk about Hayward as our main segment, but first uh, we wanted to hit on a few of the smaller things because we usually do a news item at the top of each show, and one of the things that stood out to, to us was Chris Paul's debut as a member of the Houston Rockets next to James Harden. What what did you guys think about that? I thought it was fascinating to watch. I mean, it was interesting that they just got the brake speed off him while they were playing out there together. And then, you know, down the stretch, Chris sits. Uh, they just run out that smaller lineup where they can switch everything. And, you know, they go on a run. And what did that uh, what did that mean in terms of first of all, you know, Chris Paul had such a huge positive effect when he was on the court with the Clippers uh, to see them not actually kind of carry that over with Harden. Whose whose fault was that? Was that just like a first night sort of thing that that needs to be worked out and they'll eventually figure it out? I mean, so Chris can get into this, but as much fun as it would be, uh, to, you know, you know, point all these fingers early in the season. It's probably just Draymond's fault. (laughs) Like, Draymond went out of the game and, like, oh, all of a sudden, Rockets look a whole lot better. Yeah, when you watch those two out there, it's always interesting to talk about who needs the ball and kind of who needs to to shine and what have you. But watching, even watching the game last night, there were times where you could look at James Harden's body language. It's just game one, so I'm not going to overanalyze body language. But Chris Paul is such a kind of a traffic director there were several times where you'd watch him playing off the ball, moving guys around, and you just don't see two guards do that. And he would do that while James Harden was handling the offense, running the offense. So it's definitely going to be a work in progress. And I think watching Chris Paul do that, like it makes me wonder if he's going to actually be the one who has to step back just a little bit, even though I think he's kind of the perceived leader of that offense right now. Yeah, and also, you know, the fact that he sat down the stretch, is that part of maybe a concerted effort to stagger their minutes and also preserve Chris Paul's legs? I know he's still dealing with a little bit of a knee problem uh, that's kind of persisted. Uh, and is that something we might see from them the whole season long? I mean, you would expect they would stagger minutes. It just makes sense when you have two you know, primary ball handlers. Like, I guess we can believe Mike D'Antoni when he says that uh, that Chris's knee was hurting. But, I don't know, to me, like, the interesting thing, like, in all this, or, like, the thing to keep an eye on was uh, the three-point shooting and, like, Chris setting people up. Like, he's, he got a decent amount of assists on it. But, like, James was still out there taking a lot of pull-up threes when he was just, like, holding the ball and walks into it. And coming into the season, like, we thought, I thought, that that was going to be a thing that, like, they tried to scrub out a little bit. They took a lot of pull-up threes on that team last year. And, like, James Harden, like, one of the weird things about last year, even though he had, like, all these really good stats, was that, like, his team shot worse when he passed to them and they took a three-pointer. Like, by far. Like, they shot, like, five percentage points lower. It was, it was like, a really big difference. And Chris's teammates would always shoot a lot better, obviously, when he would set them up for shots. So that's something that didn't, like, really work out in game one. Uh, but, yeah, you would expect that to work out through the season. 
Uh, the other thing that seemed like it was going to be the big story of the evening uh, before Hayward was injured uh, is this story coming out of Chicago with Nikola Miritich and Bobby Portis getting into an altercation in practice in which Portis basically broke Miritich's face. Uh, Kyle, you had, you had some thoughts about this one, <laughs> I'm told. Oh, this, the Bulls have found like a new way to tank. It's, it's incredible. Like, Already probably the worst team, one of the few worst teams in the league, like, at the very least. And taking Miritich out, who's out indefinitely now, Portis, like, is, like, under some sort of disciplinary action. But, like— I would imagine. Even if he doesn't, even if Portis plays every game, like, redistributing Miritich's minutes, who's, like, is one of two players on the roster who's projected to be positive in on offense from, like, an RPM point of view. The other and one, one of only three to be—or four to be positive on defense as well. So. Right. So their win projection was already really bad at like 26 and a half or something like that. They like you put his minutes in someone else's hands, like you know, just redistribute around the rotation. It's down to like 21 wins. And so like just by like there are two idiot power forwards punching each other in the face. Like it's it's perfect. It's a great story. I'm so mad that we have to talk about them to begin with. The, the, The games last night, Gordon Hayward aside, the games were so good. For opening night, I can't remember two games being that good on opening night, first of all. And we are talking about the sad sack Bulls who literally on the eve of the season have a fight where they're knocking each other out cold, sending them into the surgery room. It's just sad. I mean, it's almost like we, we can't tank fast enough with the roster we have. Come on, knock him out. Like almost as if it was a setup. Yeah, it was the one remaining move after all those trades. They just weren't quite bad enough. They they hadn't quite edged out the Hawks, I guess. And then this put them under, not over the top, under the bottom, I guess. Okay, so let's leave it there on how bad the Chicago Bulls are and and might potentially be this season and move on to what is the biggest storyline coming out of opening night, and that is the injury to the Boston Celtics' Gordon Hayward. Just five minutes into his regular season debut with the Boston Celtics Tuesday night, Gordon Hayward suffered a gruesome leg injury and had to be carted off the court on a stretcher. Later, the Celtics announced Hayward had dislocated his ankle and fractured his tibia. And although they haven't set a timetable for his recovery yet, the likelihood is that he'll miss all or most of the season. Uh, Seeing a star go down that quickly was a devastating start to the season just for the league as a whole. And the rest of the night actually went pretty well, uh, as you mentioned, Chris. Pretty good games, uh, even despite Hayward's absence. It also put a big hole in the middle of one of the league's up-and-coming teams. And it's going to have a big impact on the rest of the season. So first off, I have to ask the question... How does this affect the Boston Celtics projection? We talked about their projections, you know, ad nauseum going into the season and whether or not they could pass the Cavs. And it feels like in just a few minutes, some of that or most of that is kind of moot now. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously Hayward was going to you know, be shouldering a lot for that team. I ran the 538 Carmelo projections for them. It's bad out about 37 wins uh, is the new Whoa. projection. And that was down from, what did we say in the preseason, 46, 47, something like that? So their projection already wasn't great. It was 47 wins for a team that was like the number one seed last year at 53 wins. They added Kyrie. They traded away Isaiah, who was, you know, going to miss time anyway this year. And they added Hayward. And, like, fans expected them to be, you know, up 55, 56 wins. Uh, our projections had them with uh, with Hayward, with Kyrie at 47, losing Hayward and giving his minutes to, to Jason Tatum, to Jalen Brown, Brought them down to 37, which is uh, like might probably out of the playoffs. 
Yeah, or at least right on the verge of that. So, so Chris, now that we the Celtics kind of are what they are without Hayward, what what is the state of that team? I mean, Kyrie is obviously now going to shoulder more of the burden than ever. He wanted to be the number one, you know, option on a team. He's got that wish and then some. But then also, how how about some of these guys, these younger guys, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, those type of guys? They're going to have to take really big steps forward, right, in order to kind of fulfill what people thought that the this team might be going into the the season. Yeah, it's it's a big bet and it's a big opportunity on those guys now I think to to see what they can step up and do and I think it's a little too early Um, you know I I remember thinking watching Jason Tatum in summer league not being quite as blown away by him as everybody else was thinking that he was playing too much of an ISO style for what he'd really have an opportunity to do with Isaiah Thomas at the time who was still on the team and now all of a sudden you know you're gonna need guys to kind of create more offense Kyrie can't do it by himself he's not that good of a shot creator for everybody else. Uh, he, he obviously can make plays for other people at times. But, you know, all of a sudden, now you might need a little bit more out of Horford is the guy that I think we don't talk about much. I think you're going to need more out of Marcus Smart, who all of a sudden is going to have a chance to go out and prove that he really deserves a big contract since he didn't get the extension. But, yeah, Tatum and Brown, I don't think Jalen Brown is going to give you 20 or 25 most nights the way he did last night. Granted, not, not the most efficient night from him, but... He's going to have a lot of nights now where he's getting shots. And so it's going to be interesting to see what they do there. But it's not shocking to me that the projections have them pretty low because that's a team with guys that aren't proven right now. Yeah, I mean, so the thing is, like, they don't need that much out of Jalen Brown also for them to get sort of back on track, at least into the playoffs. Uh, So one of the interesting things about the Carmelo projection is that it really hates Jalen Brown. Yeah. And, like, so obviously he's a guy who, around the league, you know, GMs and whatever, like, have very differing opinions about how good this dude's going to be. But our projection system thinks he is going to be worse than replacement level. Uh, And for anyone who, like, doesn't know, replacement level is basically what you can get just off the street in the free agent pool. Like a G League type of call-up, almost. Basically, yeah. And so it just thinks that Jalen's worse than that. So he doesn't have to be that much better. He can just be like, he doesn't have to be Jay Crowder. He can just be competent and they gain a few wins on their projection. And maybe in some ways it's actually kind of good that he's not Jay Crowder in the in the sense that he's not like a fully developed you know prospect that you know what you're going to get out of him. That there is that variance in there because like you mentioned, if the Celtics are knocked down to around 500 or even like a game or two under 500, uh, then you want to have a lot of variance in how your players you know might project during the season because they might overshoot that by a lot, and then that would put them back into you know the conversation for moving up in the East. Yeah, I mean, like this is something we've talked about before, where even with Hayward around, if Kyrie and Hayward are your two best players, like, I don't know how far you're going to go. That's probably not a championship team. So the plan always was for some of these draft picks, whether it's Brown, whether it's Tatum, whether it's like whoever they still have coming up to, you know, grow into the role of being either the best player, the second best player and like having three, four like legitimate stars. Yeah, and I was actually kind of really impressed by the way that the Celtics actually kind of picked themselves up, especially in, in the second half of that game, and really gave the Cavs everything that they could they could handle. Uh, even after the, having to watch one of their best players be carted off, they regrouped and they played really well defensively against a Cavs team that was one of the better offensive teams in the league last season. So again. I don't know how much you can read into that. It was opening night, and, and it's going to be a long slog for this team, especially since they're going to have to cover for all those missing minutes and missing shots and everything that Hayward would have provided. But at least it did show you know, kind of a, a resilience. They could have 
folded from you know five minutes into the season, but instead they fought really hard. I'm I'm really interested to see long term what happens now because obviously it's kind of a weird hypothetical, but if you're the Celtics and you knew that Gordon Hayward would have gotten hurt here, would you still have gone after him and gotten him and given him a deal like that? You you obviously had to shed some important guys from your rotation in order to get him. You still feel like this will be a good, valuable, long-term piece for you, and they were giving up someone that they knew would be hurt for a big portion of this year anyway. So it's kind of a weird predicament they've been thrown into, but having to give up Avery Bradley to make room for Gordon Hayward's max deal, having to give up Jay Crowder, they really are ending up taking a hit defensively in some ways for this team, especially because they've got so many young guys that need playing time. But that was kind of part of their calling card last year is that they were much better defensively than most of these East teams. And now I'm not really sure how good they're going to be with so many young guys in this rotation. This is another place where like conference imbalance really kind of screws them over too because even if they like do like run out those 37 wins, 35 wins, that's not nearly enough to catch up to the terrible Bulls, the terrible Hawks, like all these teams who are just like not very good, especially in the East. And like they might make the play, they might make the playoffs with thirty nine wins, right? And like that takes them out of the lottery. So it's not even like they can you know capitalize on Hayward being out for this one season. You know, like David Robinson being out for one season, going out and getting Tim Duncan. Like, no, like they're in the East. Like that doesn't work. Yeah, and Kyle, you talked about history and sort of you know the the David Robinson Spurs that one year where he went down and they were able to get Tim Duncan. Another historical comparison that kind of immediately sprung to mind for me were the 2001 Orlando Magic, who brought together T Mac and Grant Hill, much in the same way, maybe not quite exactly the same, but the you know Kyrie and and Hayward seemed a little you know like that one two punch that you bring in, and then one is just instantly gone. That Magic team with T Mac. Uh, kind of dragging them along the way still ended up winning 43 games and that seems sort of you know plausible for for the Celtics as well and that got them the seventh seed in the east that year that was another down year the Sixers won the east uh with 56 wins uh in in 2001 and it did sort of you know set them up on this treadmill in which eventually you know they traded away T-Mac and they bottomed out and and got Dwight Howard but it really nothing ever came together out of this this core that seemed like it was going to be you know uh, an up and team out of free agency now and so we haven't talked about the injury itself at all right and uh like grand hill is like a spooky comparison but the dislocated ankle is a as as crazy as it sounds it's a more serious injury than some of the other similar injuries we've seen like with the like kevin ware or like paul george that that look similar but like it being in the ankle instead of just being like up in the leg you're dealing with the joint you're dealing with a bunch of smaller bones you're dealing with all those like tendons down there like it is a more serious injury it's the it's the rg3 injury yeah um, like to go back to like another like case you don't want, really want to be comparing it to so yeah like they need to think about uh like obviously this season but like what this means like going forward too and what do we think this does for the East-West gap? Because we spent you know, the offseason talking about the way that almost all of the top players that were up for grabs moved from the East to the West, except for Gordon Hayward. He was almost maybe the only kind of star player that moved from West to East. And now that gets wiped off the board. Is this going to be almost an, a, a chasm between the two conferences of, of unthinkable proportions at this point? I don't, I don't think it fundamentally changes that much with that I, I think honestly too we kind of have to wait and see what happens with Kawhi Leonard you know someone that we don't talk about that much because the Spurs have been good for so long 
But the idea that Tony Parker, who's declined a little bit anyway, is out, but also the fact that Kawhi Leonard, we're not sure the extent of his injury. The Spurs, you know, we could waterboard them and they would never tell us either. If, if he's seriously hurt or if he's going to be missing a lot of time, I think some of these teams in the West, if they have injuries like that, the gap will be what it is anyway. And it's almost at a point where it couldn't really widen that much further anyway. So I don't, I don't make too much of it from that standpoint. But Boston could be in a lot of trouble because they could be right in the middle, like Kyle said, where you really don't want to be. And there's really no payoff for them in being in that spot. Yeah, the chasm of unimaginable proportions is in the East, actually, where like LeBron could probably sit out half the year. Like everyone except I guess the Wizards who think that they, you know, have the Cavaliers number, like, knows that the East is now the Cavs and like there's really no contender for that. Okay. So let's leave it there. Uh we'll see what happens as the days pass and, and we get more information about maybe a timetable for Hayward to come back, uh, and also see what it does to the Celtics, you know, rotation as, as they go forward. But yeah, just a bummer coming right out of the gates to to see that happen. And like you mentioned, Chris, the the rest of the games actually were fantastic. Uh a couple of really close finishes that came down to the last shot. Yeah, it was strange seeing the Warriors. Both games kind of played out the same way too, where both teams that had the big leads for the majority of the game just kind of it almost looked like they took their feet off the pedal the Warriors it was a little bit different because it kind of seemed like Draymond being out really threw a wrench in what they were doing they didn't have Iguodala and so those kind of secondary point forwards that they normally run the second halves with just weren't there and it seemed like it really took a toll on them but it it was a really good slate of games for opening night when teams are still kind of in a warm-up phase but uh, I really enjoyed watching it, other than the Hayward injury, like you said. All right, any last thoughts on this? No, I mean, like, I think there, I think there's definitely something to be said for, like, just player development not really be and, like, the variance between, like, it, not, not variance, uh, like, but player development and, like, the difference between, like, teams that do it well and teams that don't and how, like, a prospect is just being judged on, like, other prospects that, like, have similar stats, uh, not necessarily, like, similar like, coaching staffs. So, like, a team like the Celtics, very young, like, has Brown, has Tatum, has these players, like, who are super young and are, like, in these big roles, getting a lot of minutes. Like, probably, like, the Stevens effect and, like, the coaching staff effect isn't taken into account in, like, the projection stuff. Yeah, and, you know, to that point, we've seen that certain coaches, Greg Popovich, of course, comes to mind, uh, but there are others, have a persistent ability to boost their team's records relative to what you would expect not not only in the sense of winning close games you know Pythagorean record versus actual record uh, and and coming out with more wins that way but also just relative to projections like the ones that Carmelo is making going into the season uh, and and probably Stevens if we you know run this if we had run this going back to his first season he would be exceeding it because he jumped from 25 wins his first year uh, with the Celtics to 40 then to 48 then to 53 wins uh and and so in each one of those you know leaps there is involved a certain amount of overperformance or, or beating expectations because normally we would expect a team that wins you know especially 48 games and 53 games to regress back to the mean uh and, and especially with such a young team and and you know an unproven coach to go back toward that 41 win mark so i would expect that if you did some kind of you know coaching analysis and looked at who was an overperforming coach over the last three seasons that brad stevens would be near the top of the entire list it just makes me wonder when when you look at what they're going to have to deal with now. Uh, The same way that sometimes you have an offense in football 
designed around what your quarterback is able to do. So no, Hayward wasn't the the number one guy here. Obviously, Kyrie was probably going to take that role. But Hayward does a lot of unique things. Brad Stevens knows Gordon Hayward from having coached him in college. And it just makes me wonder how much of certain things in their playbook or just in terms of the best laid plans that you had laid out for certain sets and things like that, that he is the key guy that the play is going to be built around. How many things like that do you have to throw out and how many can you keep and just kind of utilize for someone else in that offense? Hayward is a unique guy in terms of the different skill sets that he presents, and I'm not sure that they have a whole lot of other guys on the roster like that. I mean, the other thing is they just don't have a whole lot of shooting left. Um, Jay Crowder, like, had the best shooting year of his life last year, but, like, he still had a really good shooting year. Avery Bradley was a pretty reliable outside shooter. Kelly Olynyk left in free agency, and, like, he was replaced by Marcus Morris, who was out last night. He'll be back uh, pretty soon, we think. Um, but, like, you know, it, obviously they do different things on the floor. So, like, yeah, the Celtics have a system that's like, relies on three-point shooting, and, like, they're going to have you take those shots even if you can't make them, which is why Marcus Smart took so many threes last year, even though he really can't take that shot. Uh, so, yeah, like, like Chris is saying, like, they have a system in place, and it just seems like they're kind of running out of bodies for it. All right, let's leave it there, and we're going to wrap up the show with a segment, a debut segment, in fact, that we like to call Small Sample. Each week we're going to be talking about an emerging trend that doesn't necessarily have a lot of data behind it yet, but might end up being meaningful before the season's end. And after last night's performance uh, in that opening night game against the Rockets, I feel like we have no choice but to make the small sample, uh, the inaugural small sample, about... Golden State Warriors swingman Nick Young, uh, who poured in 23 points last night on 8 of 9 shooting, including 6 of 7 from downtown. You tweeted about this, Chris, that he's actually a a sneaky great fit with the Warriors, right? Yeah, it's kind of almost annoying that watching him play on the other side of the court from Chris Paul and thinking to yourself, like, man, Nick Young is really about to be an NBA champion before Chris Paul. But before Chris Paul even makes the conference finals, which is just nuts. But looking at Nick Young and why he fits, you actually look back to last year as well. People kept highlighting the fact that obviously Kevin Durant is one of the best players in the world. But he also was one of, I think, the the four best catch-and-shoot three-point shooters last year, along with Steph and along with Clay, who ranked right at the top of the league as well. And then when you looked at last season's list, the people on the top of that list and Nick Young was like top five there as well. And so it looks like, you know, for obvious reasons, Golden State, some of the guys that they're looking to plug in from year to year are guys that they know will be a fit because they know they can hit a wide open three. And when you look at a lot of the shots he made last night, they were wide open and they they probably need to be because if you're going to pick one guy to play off of and to help away from, Nick Young is going to be the choice when you've got Kevin Durant and Steph Curry and Klay Thompson out there with him. And, like, also, it's not like we didn't know that, like, Nick Young can have these games. He's had, like, games where he scores, like, 45 points on 20 shots, like, 7 for 10 from 3. Except the thing is he also has games where he goes, like, (laughs) 1 for 15 and, like, 0 for 5 from 3 and, like, keeps taking shots. And so, like, on a team like Chris is saying, like, on a team like the Warriors where, you know, he's going to be reined in, he's not allowed to have those 1 for 15 nights. 
well, yeah, that's a much different player. Yeah, you almost get to keep the good parts of his game and also on a team that was the second-best defense in basketball last season. Uh, you know, it's long been known that Nick Young, bad defensive player, uh, or at least a you know kind of a low-effort defensive player uh, in, in the past when he's been on his own on teams and trying to kind of play like a starter's role and that kind of thing. Dynamite offensive player, dynamite shooter, so it kind of makes sense that they would be able to kind of plug him in and have him play a very limited role and do really well in that role. Now, he had a 31.8 PER last night. His true shooting percentage was above 1,000. So obviously that is not going to persist, I think, going forward. But It's not? No, no. Uh, you know, if it, if it did, it, it would – I actually think the 31.8 PER, though – is lower than Russell Westbrook's PER was for the whole season last season. You you might have to check me on that, but his small sample, great Nick Young's small sample, amazing game was actually not as good for the whole season as as Russell Westbrook. I mean, the Warriors are just dumb, though. I mean, like I remember, was it was three years ago now, maybe two years ago, when like Steph was having his first, you know, really, you know, cataclysmic Steph year. Like for the first fifteen games or something like that, Steph's PER was like in the forties. It was it was just dumb. Yeah, uh, and so we'll we'll see if he can keep it up. But definitely one of the more interesting fits uh, in in any contending team this season. Uh, and even though not always an analytic darling, always a, a really entertaining player. I think Nick Young uh, has been throughout his career. All right, so that'll do it for this week's show. Uh, And a special note, if you missed our episode that we published Tuesday, be sure to check it out in our feed. Chris has an in-depth discussion with Lakers owner and president Jeannie Buss in which they had a really wide-ranging conversation about Phil Jackson, Lonzo Ball, and more. So give it a listen when you have a chance. So our podcast producers are Tony Chow and Katie Ferguson. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. We receive production assistance from our intern, Dan Levitt. You can email us at podcast at 538.com. We'd love to hear what you think. Whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we're there. We're also on Apple Podcasts, so subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. You can find us in the Listen tab of the ESPN app as well. Be sure to review and rate the show, which helps others discover the program. I'm Neil Payne. Thanks for listening, and talk to you next time.